Well, let's, okay, ushers are taking care of all of that thing, and I want to just make sure that I have your attention as we, as we get started this morning. What we're going to be doing together this morning is we are going to be celebrating a feast with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I make that statement, and I'm not real certain that we all fully comprehend what I just said. We are actually this morning going to celebrate a feast with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm afraid sometimes when we come to this time that we really don't recognize everything that is in His heart. But I do want you to know this morning, this is something that is in the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is something that He wants to do with us. And of course, uh, and, and we do try to go back in our in history to the origin of this just about every time so that we never lose sight of what it is that we're actually doing now some of you folks are new believers some of you are so new you've never even been to a, a biblical communion service in your life others of you have been around here for years and years and you've done this many times but whether it's the first time or whether this is the 500th time Let's all just take a few minutes to be reminded of what this thing is, is really all about. The Lord Jesus Christ, of course, was in the upper room with his disciples. It was the night before he was to be crucified, and they have gathered in that upper room for a very particular purpose. In the minds of the disciples, they were there to celebrate the Passover feast. And while they're in that upper room celebrating the Passover feast, what the Lord does is he turns that feast into his own supper. And of course, the Passover feast, if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, was a, a feast that was celebrated every year that celebrated God as the Deliverer, God as the Redeemer. And of course, the, the nation of Israel was in bondage in Egypt, and through the blood of of a lamb God delivered them out of that bondage that they were in God redeemed them and the night before he died as they were eating that Passover supper Jesus let his disciples know that all of that stuff in the Old Testament and all of that Passover thing that they were about to do he was letting those fellows know that it was all really just a picture it, the Bible uses the term Egypt and as you begin to just see this thing as God uses that term it is consistent from beginning to end that Egypt is a picture of the world Egypt is a picture of sin and as he was celebrating that Passover feast he was saying now fellas from here on out don't go back to God as deliverer because of what he did back in, when he delivered you out of Egypt with the blood of that Passover lamb. He, he was saying, listen, that was just a picture. You are in bondage to the world. The world has its grip on you. You are in bondage to sin. And Jesus was saying to those men, what I am about to do is I am about to go be that sacrificial lamb and I will offer myself and I will shed my blood to redeem you out of the bondage that you are in in this world I'm going to deliver you out of the bondage of your sin and in the midst of that supper he took the bread and he took the cup and he said now listen from now on these two things are going to symbolize something completely different than they did in that Passover feast. And he began to teach them that that bread was going to symbolize who he was. And that cup was going to symbolize what he did. Now listen, if any person on this planet is ever going to come into a relationship with God, there's two things that you must I mean, there, this is not a, a negotiable item. There's two things that you've got to come to grips with. Number one, what's represented in that bread. 
you've got to come to grips with the fact of who Jesus Christ is. In John chapter 6, what Jesus said is that he was, listen to it now, he was the true bread that came down from heaven. And he says that you must eat that bread. And we understand what Jesus was symbolizing there. He was saying, you've got to come to grips with the fact that I am God who came down to this planet in a veil of human flesh. You've got to deal with the fact of who I am. You've got to come to grips with that. You've got to believe that. You must sin but you see our salvation though we most definitely had to come to grips with that truth if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior the first thing that you must understand about coming into a relationship with God is you got to believe who Jesus Christ is that he is God that visited this planet in a human life but you see what Jesus was trying to do is show these men through that bread and that cup their salvation and you see it wasn't just enough that the Lord Jesus Christ took a human body and came to this planet and lived a sinless life now again when we partake of that bread this morning that's what we're going to be celebrating that's what we'll be thanking God over that's what we'll be remembering and calling into our remembrance that's what we'll be communing with when we eat the bread but you see Jesus could have come to this planet he could have lived that sinless life and because he was God that life could have continued on to this very day do you understand that and had he continued to live his life there's none of us that would ever be saved because we're not saved by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ without the shedding of blood there is no remission but We've got to deal with who he is. But the second part of this supper is that cup. We're dealing with what he did as the spotless lamb of God. What he did when he came to this planet and what he did is he laid himself down in perfect fulfillment of the type of the Passover lamb. He laid his life down as a sacrifice and he shed his blood. Listen. Not so that our sin could be covered, but so that our sin could be completely removed. So it could be completely taken away. Hebrews chapter 10 says that that high priest in the Old Testament, what it says is year after year he had to keep coming back and offering a sacrifice for sin. And the reason that he had to keep coming back is because the job was never done. He could never just come and offer a sacrifice and say, there, it's, it's over. He could never just offer a sacrifice and then sit down. But Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 12 says, but this man, check it out, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to the verse, but this man after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. In Hebrews chapter 14, verse 10, just two verses after the one I just quoted, said, by that one offering, he, the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. And in the Lord's Supper, we celebrate those two things we celebrate who Christ is and we celebrate what he did what he did for us and, and you see what is in the heart of God this morning 
is he wants to bring us back to those two things. Now, don't miss this. It, it, it's simple, but it, it, it can go right over your head. He wants to bring us back to what it was that saved us. He, he wants us this morning to once again be focused on the fact that he as God came to this, this planet in a human body, that's the bread, and that he laid his life down as a sacrifice for our sin. And he wants to bring us back to that. He wants to give us the privilege this morning through partaking of that bread and drinking of that cup to say to him in a fresh new way, Lord, I do believe that you are God. And I do believe that your blood is the only thing that can wash away sin. And you see, the bread and the cup serve as reminders of those things. They cause us to remember. And you see, that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says that this thing is really all about. It is to cause us to be put in re remembrance. In fact, Jesus said it this way. Do this in, in remembrance of me. But now listen, it's not just a reminder though. As we eat this bread this morning, as we drink this cup, it's not just remembering. Now again, it is, and that's part of it, but it's, it's like your anniversary. Th those of you that are married, every year you celebrate your anniversary, and what you're doing through that is you're not simply celebrating the fact that you were married. You know what an anniversary really is all about? Yeah, it brings you back to the day that you were married, and this may come as a surprise to some of you men, this will help you. What it's really all about is a time for you to be able to say to your wife, if I had it all to do over again, I'd do it all over again. And you know what we're getting ready to do this morning? We're getting ready to say to the Lord Jesus Christ, oh, thank you for that glorious day when you opened my eyes to the reality of who you were, and thank you for that glorious day when you laid your life down as a sacrifice for me. And I thank you that you opened my eyes to see that truth and Lord, if I had it all to do over again, I'd do it all over again. The only thing that I'd be different about in it, Lord, is I'd want to do it a whole lot earlier than I did. But it's more than just a reminder. It is communion. Now, now listen, that is, not, that is not a word that we invented for this. That is not a word that we borrowed from some state church somewhere. L listen, through this supper, our, our Lord desires for us to come into his presence in a very unique way to commune with him or to, to fellowship with him. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. Speaking of this supper, Paul says, The cup of blessing which we bless. Listen, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, he asks, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? What he's saying is, yes, this bread jolts your mind to who He is. Yes, this cup jolts your mind and puts you in remembrance of what He came to this planet to do. But, He says, you've got to understand something. This is to be communing with the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as represented in that bread. This is to be communing with the blood of Christ represented in that cup. And you see, that's why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 to 31. Listen, listen to what he says. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. And so he says, now listen, 
so that you don't come unworthily and, and drink this thing like that. He says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, he says, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, he's saying you're taking for granted the most holy thing in the world because this is a time of communion. And he says, for this reason, because there are some, as he's writing to this church in Corinth, he says, because there are people in your midst who have come to the Lord's table unworthily, he says, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. In other words, many people in that Corinthian assembly had died because of the way they approached this time. And Paul says, for if we would judge ourselves, in other words, if we would come before this time and we would examine our life and we would judge the sin there, he says, then we wouldn't be judged of the Lord. In other words, the Lord would not have to, to do this because we would come to his table worthily. And this morning, what we're about to do is very similar to what took place in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement. You remember last week we kind of used this room as a representative of the, the tabernacle. And remember we, we saw the, the brazen altar here and we saw the brazen laver here and we came to this place and we saw the seven... Uh, branch candlestick we were over here at the table of showbread the, the bread of life and we came over here to the altar of, of incense and we talked about that place right in there that place in there is, is what? it's the holy of holies there is that, that veil that is there and on the day of atonement the high priest would come in to that place and it was such a such a sanctified place because that was where the presence of God actually was. And remember we talked about the fact that if that Old Testament priest came in and there was anything about him that was unholy, what happened to him, y'all? He died. And do you see what's happening here this morning? Through this supper... The Lord allows us to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he says, if you come unworthily, just like that Old Testament priest, you're either going to get sick or you're going to die. And I feel like every time that we come to this, now, hey, this is Bible. That's just the way that it puts it out there. But every time that we come to this, I feel like I, I've got to say, that the Lord said all of that, not so that we would, this morning, hold that bread in our hand and be worried sick that we're going to, you know, croak. No. He gives us the opportunity of seeing how hallowed this is in his mind and in his heart. And all he says is, examine yourself. And what you see there, judge it. So that you can come and commune with the blood of Christ and commune with the body of Christ so that you come worthily. Anybody here think you're coming worthy to do this this morning? No, none of us. We come worthy, though, based on the sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ made and the fact that we are in Him. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. But we use this as an opportunity for the Lord to just allow us, in light of His holiness, to look at ourselves and examine ourselves. And now where we are in Revelation chapter 15 is John sees... The Holy of Holies opened in heaven. And, and okay, now, now listen so that you, you make sure that you get the connection 
of what we're, we're studying this morning. He sees the Holy of Holies opened in heaven. And because that's where the Lord invites us to come this morning, I, I have chosen today to just continue our study so that we might use this as preparation for what we're about to do as we partake of this bread and this cup. And what's in my heart is, is maybe if we can see what John saw this morning, maybe it might allow us today to come into the presence of the Lord through this supper. Coming beyond the veil into His presence. And maybe this morning we might understand the absolute reverence with which we ought to come. And how this morning this ought to cause every one of us to stand in awe of the privilege that is ours to commune with the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation chapter 15, what John sees here in verse 5 is he sees the true tabernacle opened in heaven. Okay, now... We're going to just try to streamline the review for you folks who have not been here. I, I, I wish you could have seen everything that we've seen thus far. But what, what God's doing is he's trying to prepare John and every person who would ever pick up the book of Revelation and read what John saw. He's preparing John and us for what we will see at a point in the tribulation period, or what will take place on this planet. And it is so incredible that it's almost that like God has to just spend a little bit of time getting him ready to see, understand what's about to happen. And, and so John sees the true tabernacle in heaven. And in the Old Testament, there was a tabernacle that according to Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 2 was just a picture. It was just a replica, if you will, of a true tabernacle that is in heaven. And that's what John sees here. When he says in verse 5, the temple of the tabernacle, he's talking specifically about that, that innermost sanctum of the tabernacle, the, the holy of holies that we, we talked about. And even more specifically, beyond that, that veil in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant contained the tables of stone, referred to in Scripture as the law or the testimony. And he says here, that it was opened. Look at it in verse 5. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And to fully understand the opening of this true tabernacle in heaven, we, we talked about the fact that to really grasp what flows out of the Holy of Holies here is you've got to understand what is taking place on that tabernacle or that temple that will be rebuilt during the tribulation period. Now again, the context in Revelation chapter 15 is the tribulation period. In fact, it is at the very close of the tribulation period. Right at the very end of this, when God's wrath is going to be revealed, and we'll talk more about that in just a second, but that's, that's the context of where we are. And what we're going to find as, as we go through this thing is that at the midpoint of the tribulation period, according to Daniel chapter 9, according to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, according to what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, what is going to take place at the midpoint of the tribulation period is the Antichrist is going to come into that newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, and what he will do at that midpoint is he will commit the abomination that makes desolate, or the abomination... Of desolation he will come into that temple and he will sit his sorry self down on the throne reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ in that temple and he is going to proclaim himself to be God an image will be erected of himself and all of the world will be constrained and forced to bow before that image and if you don't then you you cannot buy or sell because when you come to that place of worshiping the Antichrist in the tribulation period, 
what will happen is they'll put a mark in your forehead or in your the back of your 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 hand and in order to buy or sell anything you'll have to have taken that mark they'll know whether or not you've been a worshiper of the antichrist whether or not you have the mark and what it says according to revelation chapter 13 and revelation chapter 20 and verse 4 is that if you don't take that mark those that are left in the tribulation period it says that you will be decapitated the antichrist will orchestrate and all over this planet will set up i don't know exactly how it would be but lines where people will wait in line to have their head chopped off during that tribulation period so you got to understand that holy of holies on the earth is going to be opened by the antichrist and what he is about to do is so abominable to god the temple opens in heaven and as that holy of holy is uh, is open first john sees the heavenly messengers of the wrath of god that's letter a on your outline the heavenly messengers of the wrath of god the opening of the temple of the tabernacle of the testimonies roman numeral one and letter a the heavenly messengers of the wrath of god he says in verse six and the seven angels came out of the temple having the seven plagues okay now these are the ones that are actually going to be used of god to pour out his wrath and i want you to notice that john says that he saw him come out of the temple okay now now get this in, in your mind these seven angels have just been in the holy of holies in heaven the true tabernacle they've been in the presence of God in that very innermost sanctuary of the heavenly temple and you know what was happening in there while they were there the holy righteous just almighty God has just commissioned and equipped these angels to be his instruments or his messengers in dispensing the most terrible and fierce and cruel devastation on humanity since the beginning of time and I want to make sure that you don't miss the fact that their commissioning and their equipping takes place in the temple it takes place y'all in that innermost sanctum of God's holiness and it's that same point that we've been trying to make for the last several weeks God's wrath proceeds from his what from his holiness his holiness demands as Romans 1:18 says that God's wrath be poured out against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men if it is not then God is not holy and because God is holy he is a God of wrath and he says that all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men is going to be poured out on man in fact let's go back to Romans chapter 2 for a minute Romans chapter 2 And look with me at verse 4. Paul asks, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth us to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasures up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God okay now, now just hold your place here in Romans 2 and I want you to to listen to what Paul's saying to us here in light of what we're seeing in, in Revelation chapter 15 okay John sees these seven angels and when he sees them 
They proceed from the mercy seat where God, for 6,000 years, God has invited men to partake. Look at verse 4. God's invited all of the people on this planet to come beyond the veil and to the mercy seat to partake, as verse 4 says, of the riches of His goodness and His forbearance and His long-suffering. But you see, these people in the tribulation, just, just like people today, in, in fact, probably like some of the people that are in this room this morning, like verse 5 says, look at it, they harden their heart and they refuse to repent. They're impenitent. They, they refuse to repent. And what Paul says here is that by doing that, he says you're, what you're actually doing is you're treasuring up or you're storing up for yourself wrath that's going to be poured out on you when God's wrath is revealed, which is that time that John is talking about in Revelation chapter 15. And watch how John, uh, Paul refers to it here at the end of verse 5. He refers to it as the righteous judgment of God. Do you fully understand, folks, that God is perfectly righteous in pouring out His wrath? And because He is, it demands all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men be judged. And what Paul's really trying to get us to see in verses 4 and 5 of Romans chapter 2 is that people who harden their heart and refuse to repent while God is inviting them to come and taste of the Lord and see that He is good and be a recipient of, of His forbearance and, and his, his, his mercy. He says for people who harden their heart and are impenitent, they refuse to repent. What he's showing us here is they are going to get exactly what they deserve. Do you believe that? Listen to this quote. I wish you had it in front of you. You're going to have to listen real carefully. Will God give man brains to see these things? And will man then fail to exercise his will toward that God? The sorrowful answer is that both of these things are true. God will give a man brains to smelt iron and make a hammerhead and nails. God will grow a tree and give man strength to cut it down and brains to fashion a hammer handle from its wood. And when man has the hammer and the nails, God will put out his hand and let man drive nails through it and place him on a cross in the supreme demonstration that men are without excuse. So John sees these, these seven angels come out from the Holy of Holies. But they don't come out as ministers of grace. They move out of the temple. And away, check this out, away from the mercy seat as ministers and messengers of wrath. And those on earth will receive judgment without mercy. And the very fact that there are seven of them, God's number of completion and perfection, it means that at this period of time, y'all, there will not be any stone left unturned as they execute God's seven judgments from the seven angels as it's poured out upon the earth. And, and notice as they proceed from the presence of God that their, their clothes signify divine righteousness in their character. That's number one under A. Their clothes signify divine righteousness in their character. 
And again, this is another way of making the, the same point that we were just talking about. John says in verse 6 that they were clothed in pure and white linen. Now listen, what, what these angels are about to do is, is terrible. But though it's terrible, it is absolutely and totally right. The, the fact that they are in pure and white linen, it means there's no spot or stain of sin or unrighteousness in what they're about to do. They're wearing the garments that are defined in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 8 as the garments of righteousness. The righteousness that proceeds only from God Himself. And John goes on in verse 6 to say that not only are these seven angels clothed in pure and white linen, but he says they have their breasts girded about with golden girdles. And whereas their clothes signify right, divine righteousness in their character, their girdles signify divine righteousness in their conduct. In their conduct. When John saw the Lord revealed in Revelation chapter 1 in the fullness of all of His, his, his glory, in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13, John said that he saw the Lord, and check it out, he was girded, with a golden girdle about the paps, or the, the chest, the, the breast, if you will. And when these seven angels come out from the throne room of God to do the work that God has equipped them and commissioned them to do, they come out wearing golden girdles just like the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they go in His name. They go not to execute their own wrath. They are going to execute the righteous wrath of Almighty God. And again, they're just the messengers of the wrath of God. Yeah, understand now, there's no wrath or anger in anywhere that's mingled in any part of them and what they're doing. In fact, when we get to chapter 16, what we're going to see is that these angels... It can't even go at all and, until they are specifically commanded to go and to pour out their vial. And when they do, it's not in some kind of fury. It's not in some kind of passion or rage or frenzy. What happens in chapter 16 is they go to pour out their wrath is they just very calmly and dispassionately pour out the vials of God's wrath or righteousness just like God told them to do. So the seven angels are the heavenly messengers of the wrath of God. And then in verse 7, John sees something else. Go, go back to Revelation 15 if you're not there yet. John sees something else in verse 7. This is letter B on your outline. He sees the heavenly mediators of the wrath of God. The heavenly mediators of the wrath of God. John says in, in verse 7, And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vials full of the wrath of God. And you just, you just got to love how John interjects this last little phrase, Who liveth forever and ever. In other words, John says, don't ever lose sight of the fact that the eternal, everlasting, ever-living God is a God of judgment. And His judgment has everlasting consequences. And like we've talked about before in recent weeks, though God has continuously been exercising His love and His grace and His mercy and His long-suffering and His tender-heartedness and His compassion for... That's what's been going on for 6,000 years. And yet what we find in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1 and all the way through chapter 15 is that while God has been exercising that grace and mercy and love, His wrath has also been filling up and there is coming a day when that wrath will be exercised 
And, and to be quite honest, I'm not sure how this whole thing comes together, but it's apparent in verse 7 that the four beasts, okay, now get this in your mind. Remember, we saw the four beasts when we were back in chapter 4. And you remember, they're the four cherubim who are positioned at each of the four corners of the throne of God. And do you remember what they do? They're just constantly, what it says, giving glory and honor and thanks to the Lord, crying, do you remember what they cry? Isaiah heard them. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. And it's apparent in, in verse 7 that they're very closely tied into this thing of God's wrath filling up. And as I just look at that and say, what connection would they have? Do you remember? And this is just speculation, but do you remember that there was also a fifth cherub who lost his position before the throne when he rebelled against the Lord? There's four of them now. There was a fifth. And maybe because of that, maybe because of what they saw, maybe, maybe these four beasts are the ones that are most intent. Above all of God's created beings, maybe these are the ones that are most intent on God getting the glory and the honor and the thanks that He deserves as the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. But for whatever reason, the Lord uses them as the mediators of His wrath. Actually, He, he uses one of them that acts for, on behalf of all of them. And he, th this one of the four beasts acting for all of them gives to the seven angels or the, the seven messengers the wrath of God. He, they, he gives them the seven vials that contain, and would you look at verse 7? That contain not only God's wrath, but verse 7 says, the fullness of his wrath. These vials are full of the wrath of God. Oh my goodness, man. Do you understand what's represented in these things? It's not just that they're filled to the brim. Yeah, they are. But it is the fullness of God's wrath that they are dispensing. And you know what's so sad? If the people who are about to have this wrath poured out on them during the tribulation period, do you understand? Any time up to this point that we're reading about, at any point, you know what they could have done? They could have gone to God Himself. They could have come to the mercy seat and received the fullness of God's love the fullness of God's grace and mercy as it was filled up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do, do you realize that the, the people that we witness to on a daily basis, the people that we work with, the people in our neighborhood, the people in our families, do you realize, folks, that they are going to receive not only the wrath of God, they're going to receive the fullness of God's wrath when they could have just simply humbled themselves and been a recipient of the fullness of God's grace and mercy and, and love. And as I've told you before, what I have to do when I come to, to passages like this and realize that I'm about to... in similar fashion to these angels, be a messenger of God's wrath. I've got to deal with the fact that there are people that are in this room this morning that if you continue to go the path that you're going, if you continue to say no to God, as we saw in Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and you harden your heart and you refuse to repent in light of what the Lord Jesus Christ shows you, do you understand this morning that we are reading about you here?
this wrath will be poured out on you when today you could have poured out on you the fullness of the love of Almighty God. That's what's in his heart for you. ...of God's wrath are the seven angels. The mediators of God's wrath are the four beasts, one acting for all, and then last, letter C. John shows us the heavenly manifestation of the wrath of God. You know, buddy, you got to see what happens when this whole thing comes down. Okay, now check it out. For 6,000 years, while God's been displaying and exercising His love, at this point, His wrath has finally filled up. And He looks over at one of the four beasts, and He says, It's time. Go for it. And in light of what he has seen us human beings do for 6,000 years, and in light of what he saw, that anointed cherub that covered the throne of God, that fifth cherub we were talking about, he says, yes. And he takes those seven vials, and he hands them to the seven angels. And, and, and listen now. This may sound all methodical and calculated and, okay, they take this, the seven vials as God's wrath has been filled up and then they do this with it. Oh, my. You've got to see what takes place in heaven as all of this comes together. This is not just some methodical little things taking place. John's not just talking about, okay, the wrath's been filling up and then they take the vials and then he hands them... As God begins to manifest his wrath, something major takes place. Look at verse 8. John says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no man was able to enter into the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. Now work with me here, y'all. This is so important. Something very similar has happened like this before. I want you to turn back to the book of Exodus, chapter 40. Second book of the Bible, Exodus chapter 40. Okay, now listen. In Exodus chapter 40, God shows us what happened when, when Moses had finished building that tabernacle in the wilderness that replica that we've been talking about for the last several weeks. He's going to show us what happened when it was all said and done, when it was all finished. And you'll notice at the end of verse 33, it says, So Moses finished the work. And now look at verse 34. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled his tabernacle. And what's interesting is that a very similar thing happened when Solomon had finished building the temple in Jerusalem. And let me show you this over in 2 Chronicles now. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter seven. Second Chronicles seven. Okay, now listen. Solomon has finished building the temple in chapter six, and beginning in verse twelve of chapter six, he begins to offer the prayer of dedication for the temple. And in chapter seven and verse one, it says, "Now when Solomon had made an end of praying." The fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the... Here it is again. And the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. I mean, there's just this, this awesome rush as God and all of His, His holiness and power and glory 
comes into that temple and he fills it and it's the cloud of God's glory because of, listen now, because of his grace. That's what this cloud of glory is all about. In fact, look at the reaction of the people when God's glory filled the temple in verse 3. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshipped and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. And what I'm wanting you to see is at this place, His glory and His power is associated with His goodness and His mercy. But you've got to understand something. What we're seeing in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8 isn't God's glory and power associated with His grace and mercy, but God's glory and power associated with His wrath and His judgment. In the tabernacle, like we saw in Exodus 40, and here in the temple, the glory was a cloud. In Revelation chapter 15 and verse 8, the glory is not a cloud. It's smoke. The cloud is God's glory manifested in mercy. The smoke is God's glory manifested in wrath. And I want you to turn back to 2 Samuel. Just turn back to your left a few books. 2 Samuel 22. I want you to see this. In 2 Samuel 22... David, as he was prone to do, begins to sing a psalm. It's just not in the psalms, it's in 2 Samuel 22. He begins to sing a psalm, and and like most of the psalms that David wrote, there was certainly an historical reason for the psalm. But as we see through the the book of Psalms, and if you've missed this in your study of the Bible, though there's wonderful things you could glean from the psalms, you've really missed the real power of what's there, because what God did is He supernaturally took the words of the psalmist to prophesy things that would take place either at the first coming of Christ or the second coming of Christ. And that's what's going on here. He sings this psalm in Second Samuel 22, and the historical context is set for you in verse 1. It was the song that he sang because God delivered him out of the hands of his enemies, namely Saul. Prophetically now, it's a song about the second coming of Christ because if you'll notice, the things that David says happened in verses 9 through 16 or so, they they didn't ever happen in David's lifetime. But they will happen. They are the very things that the Bible says will happen at the second coming of Christ. But what I want you to see is in verse 7, David says... In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God, and He did hear my voice out of His temple. Okay? Now, which temple is that? It must be the heavenly temple that He's talking about here because the earthly temple hadn't even been built at this time and wouldn't be built until after David was, what? Dead. But He says, He did hear my voice out of His temple. And my cry did enter into his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven moved and shook because he was wrath. Wrath. In other words, he, he was filled with wrath. And watch this now. There went up a, a cloud. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils. And fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. And now listen. That's what's happening in the heavenly temple. In Revelation chapter 15. And why don't you turn back there. As we'll close this thing down. John says. In verse 8. The temple 
was filled not with a cloud, but with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And all I want you to listen very, very carefully as we prepare ourselves now to, to move into this time of communion. Now listen. The incredible Shekinah glory of God resided in Israel's temple in the Holy of Holies. That Shekinah was God's brightness, His glow. In fact, as Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29 says, it says that our God is a consuming fire. And like we talked about a little bit earlier, once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, listen, carrying a bowl of blood in his hand from an animal that had been sacrificed. And he would pour that blood on the mercy seat on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you see, that's exactly what our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, did as he sacrificed his life and shed his blood as the Holy Lamb of God. And listen, since the time that the Lord Jesus Christ did that, the way into the Holy of Holies in heaven has been opened to all. Listen, the blood of Jesus Christ has blazed a highway straight to the heart of God. But what we find in verse 8 here of Revelation 15 is that there's going to come a time right at the end of the tribulation period when that highway is going to be barred. And, and, and listen real carefully. God's wrath has already been poured out on this planet. It's already been poured out on His Son. on man's behalf. But at this point in the tribulation, God's wrath is going to be poured out again. This time it's going to be poured out on all those who refused the redemption offered through His Son as He became sin for us on that cross. And now listen. Once God enacts the seven vials and puts them into the hands of the seven angels, that's it. No one is going to enter into the Holy of Holies to find mercy. It'll be too late then. There, there's coming a day, folks, when it's going to be too late to, to humble yourself. You will, but it'll be too late. There's coming a day, and this is what Revelation 15 is all about, when it'll be too late to pray. There's coming a day when it'll be too late to repent. It'll be too late to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. It'll be too late to change your mind. His wrath will be poured out, and people will be kept away from the mercy seat, and God will refuse to hear the cries of those that are begging for one more chance. It'll be over. But the good news is, that day isn't today. The day's coming. Listen, the book has never missed one time in 4,000 years of being on this planet. It's never missed in any time that God ever said anything would happen. Believe me. Everything that we're talking about here today is going to happen exactly the way that God said it to the absolute detail. Every bit of it. But today, the Holy of Holies is opened through the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ, listen, this whole communion thing, forget it. It's not for you. Like we talked about, this is for people who've come to grips with who Jesus Christ is, that He is God in a human body. It's people who've come to grips with what He came to this planet to do as the holy, sacrificial Lamb of God. He shed His blood 
sacrificed himself so that we might come into the presence of God to enter into fellowship with God. And you see, that's the whole issue of salvation. We can't fellowship with God because we're sinful. And God is holy. He's a God of judgment because He's holy. You can't be holy without being a God of judgment against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And yet, God is a God of love. God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And the whole purpose of His coming was so that He could take your sin and be the recipient of God's wrath poured out on Him so that God could be both just and the justifier of man's sin. God took our sin, poured it out, His judgment on the wrath, His wrath on His Son so that you could come to the place to where you could simply humble yourself and say, Lord, I know there's nothing that I can do because I'm a sinner. There's nothing I can do to get to you. I can't do enough good works because I've, I'm full of bad works. I'm not trusting a stupid church anywhere. I'm not trusting something that I did in a, in a baptistry. I'm not trusting classes that I went to that somebody, you know, when I was all son all done with the classes said, "You're cool now." I, I come, and I understand that nothing that I could do, no religiousness, no good works, none of that, I trust you and you alone. I believe that you're God. And I believe that you shed your blood to remove my sin, and I trust that and that alone. You see, that's what brings you into a relationship with God. That's what brings you into the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies. And today, for some of you that have never received Christ, you could repent right there where you're seated this morning. Do you understand that? This is not about religiousness. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about signing a card. It's not about going to a counseling room. Though maybe all of those things might be done somewhere. Listen, it's all about you coming to the point of saying, God, I repent of going my own way. And I come to you trusting what you did and you alone through your death, burial, and resurrection. I trust that as payment in full for my sin. And I want you to come into my life so that I might have the relationship with you that I was created to have. And you see, when you'll simply call upon the name of the Lord by faith like that, He moves inside of you. And you enter into that relationship. Jesus said you're born again. Your dead spirit that you were born with is brought to life by the Spirit of God as He takes up residence inside of you. And maybe for some of you today, as we bow our heads in just a minute, maybe that's what needs to take place right there in that pew. Right there in that pew can become the Holy of Holies for you today. Where you come by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ into God's presence to have a relationship with Him. I'm not sure if you're seeing it, those of you that know the Lord as your Savior today. Do you understand why I felt compelled for us to go to Revelation 15 in preparation for what we're about to do today? If we don't understand the awesomeness of the presence of God if we don't understand His incredible holiness that is manifested as smoke in that temple, then I'm not real sure that we can really comprehend what it is to commune with that which allows us to be in His presence without fear. And so this morning, as 
we come into the Holy of Holies. As we come, because Jesus Christ became one of us, and yet without sin, and because he was without sin, could lay his life down as a sacrifice. We will commune with him this morning with the reminder of the bread and of the cup. And he says, don't partake of this unworthily. He's a God of judgment. Don't partake of it unworthily. So he says, examine yourself. And what God reveals, you judge it. Bring it to his blood. Turn from that. Confess anything. If you were the high priest in that Old Testament, you're getting ready to enter into the Holy of Holies. You know any sin, you're a goner. If that's you, and it is this morning through communion, whatever you would confess to him, however you would search your heart in preparation for that moment, is the examination that we all need to give to ourselves. Let's bow our heads and let's examine ourselves Let's judge ourselves and confess our sins and realizing that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then, let's partake of that bread and partake of that cup and come into the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ to commune with Him.